0: Hello, everybody. On today's podcast, I have with me Georgie Fear. Georgie is a registered dietitian and a nutrition coach. You may have heard of her book, Lean Habits. Georgie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Kim. I am thrilled that you are here. I love your book. If I had it in an actual physical form, it would be dog-eared and well-worn, but I have it on my Kindle, so it's okay. not, <laughs> but I read it and refer to it a lot. I would love it if we could start by you just telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Sure. My name is Georgie Fear. Uh, as you said, I'm a registered dietitian. I'm also board certified in sports dietetics, and I do a lot of work, um, <clears throat> excuse me, do a lot of work in weight management, fat loss, uh, overcoming disordered eating, as well as sports nutrition. So I do a lot of different things. I live in beautiful Canmore, Alberta, Canada, where I play outside in the mountains a lot. (laughs) And uh, together with my husband, Roland Fisher, we run nutritionloft.com. So we provide a lot of online educational resources as well as coaching. So that's me. And how did you get
0: into nutrition? Where was your I, start there?
1: Yeah, my my start was very early, like a lot of people who became registered dietitians. I uh, started out with having nutrition problems. Um, I okay. was have dealing with anorexia as a teenager and kind of compulsive exercising as an athlete. And I think I really it took me in a positive direction really quickly because I had the benefit of learning from somebody. I went to my own dietitian, mm-hmm. um, I think starting at around 14. And so she was able to clue me in that I could be so much better as an athlete and have so much more strength and power if I was eating well and if I was lifting weights. And um I'm really grateful for the fact that I got such wonderful advice and help at an early point in my life, which prevented me from going as far downhill as so many people do. Mm-hmm. Um I Definitely struggled for a long time after that though. I would say through high school and college. I was Calorie counting. I was you know always struggling with my weight always unhappy with my weight and doing a fair amount of emotional eating (laughs) to You know try and handle the ups and downs of life. So uh, I think learning to Overcome a lot of my own Troubles has given me a lot of insight into you know strategies that I can use to help my clients today
0: Got it. Now, your book, Lean Habits. Tell me about how that came about. Where did you get that structure? Why these habits? Actually, first, why don't you give us a brief overview about what Lean Habits
1: is? Sure. Let's start there. So the full title is Lean Habits for Lifelong Weight Loss, and it was published in 2015, and it contains uh, 16 habits. Each one is a chapter and each one is a specific behavior. And this is aimed not so much for a population for sports nutrition and not so much for a population that wants to overcome disordered eating or binge eating. So the important thing to say is this is a weight loss category book and mm-hmm. other behaviors are better for those other audiences. So for the general person who just wants to lose weight, you know, mm-hmm. there's 16 really effective science-backed skills. And where this came from is essentially how I work with my clients. So when I have a new client, you know, I take an hour to do an assessment and get a lot of detail about them and I assess their nutrition skills and behaviors. So it's not so much, tell me what you eat in a typical day and how many servings of vegetables you eat a day. Mm -hmm. It's more about figuring out what they're good at and what is holding them back from their goals. So, Commonly, people are struggling with issues such as knowing the right amount to eat mm-hmm. or how to handle hunger without it sending them off the rails. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk about emotional eating. We talk about um, choosing foods for your meals to get an optimal macronutrient balance to satisfy your appetite so you can be as comfortable as possible. Um, and, and a lot of other you know, kind of details in there as well. So the way I work with a client is not everybody needs the same skills. So each person kind of has their own personal trajectory. So as you can imagine, it's tough to take a personalized coaching process and then put it into a book where everybody is going to go in a certain order. So there was There was much, much debate. And my husband, Roland, should have his name on the cover next to mine because he basically co-authored this book with doing all the brain work with me of how would you order these things. Mm -hmm. So, for example, there's four habits um, or skills that are really foundational. So I call them the core four. Now, one of the mistakes that a lot of people make is they decide they want to lose weight, and the first thing they start doing is actually not very big picture. They start with small picture, like, Mm. I'm going to cut out sugar, Mm -hmm. or I'm going to try and eat more protein. And while those are sound behaviors to adopt, they're not going to necessarily produce weight loss if you still have some big picture problems going on, such as eating when you're not hungry. Mm -hmm. So you can cut out all the sugar in the world, and you can eat lots and lots of protein, but if you're still eating when you're not hungry, it's not going to get you into a calorie deficit. So First, and
0: that's how you came up with the the order of importance of these. Then and the four core ones, you picked the things that are going to have the most impact in that way with their behaviors. Is that, is that what you're
1: saying? Exactly. If you get those core four right, you may not even need to go through the next the 12 rest of habits. Got
0: it. Is that what you find a lot that most people need some part of those core four and then depending on the person, they may or may not need some of the others.
1: Is that what Correct. you're saying? Sometimes Correct. they Pretty can
0: much naturally it. do those other things.
1: Yeah, everybody definitely needs the first three. And then the fourth one, you have to say, I'll, I'll explain in a moment. You have to put it in there, but most people can actually skip the fourth chapter um, Got it. that are coming to me. So gotcha. uh, we so might as well talk, talk about what about these more. are. Yeah, let's talk about one. So, so the first one is actually about meal timing. And so it doesn't have to do with, what you're eating, but it has to do with how you space your calories over the course of the day. So, I've done a lot of work and research in um, central mechanisms of appetite regulation or how your brain governs, governs your food intake. And it, it's all between your ears, essentially. If you're hungry and you're trying to override that, it's just not going to work terribly well. Mm-hmm. So, if we space out our intake into about three or four eating occasions, we get, um, as you would expect, larger meals than if we break it up into five or six. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just about every trainer in the 1990s and 80s was like, hey, bro, you better eat six meals a day, maybe seven meals a day, eight if you're super advanced. (laughs) I for sure used to eat six meals a day and thought that was super, super important. Right. And then what really started to make me question this was when I worked in a hospital, because I have a clinical background, And we had, you know, little old 90 90 year old ladies that were underweight and we needed to get lots of calories in them. The strategy is to feed them every few hours so they never get too full. Uh And then you can get more calories into the total person. Uh If you try and feed them big meals, then they get very full and they can't eat again for a few hours. Uh I was like, wait a second. This sounds an awful lot like what I've been doing, and I want to lose some chub. (laughs) Why would I be trying to do this to myself? What if it actually works better to get satisfied and then not be hungry for a few hours instead of this hunger purgatory of like, not really hungry, not really full, because I'm just nibbling on So uh, rather than just experiment on me being an N of 1, I just dig into the research. So I did a lot of digging, and what I found in the research was quite astonishing in that it doesn't support eating six small meals a day for achieving a calorie deficit. You know The best way in free living people to achieve the lowest level of hunger is actually to eat until you're satisfied and then go four to six hours before eating again. So that's the first chapter in the book is that we talk about you know, getting all of your calories into three or four meals and how, it, what was that? How would you
0: suggest for somebody who a lot of people I know, a lot of the clients I work with, just people in general, they kind of go throughout the day having kind of almost like one big eating occasion, right? It kind of one blends into the other because they're constantly snacking on a little bit of this and a little bit of that. How would you suggest somebody who's in that kind of pattern move to eating three to four meals with no snacking?
1: Sure. So uh, what we do with a lot of people is... You know, we'll kind of get a sample day of what you eat for breakfast, what you eat during your mid-morning snacks, what you eat for lunch, et cetera, through the whole day. And then what we'll do is we'll take their breakfast and all of their morning snacks, and I invite them to sit down and eat them all at the same time. So if you sit down and you have that bowl of cereal and the two eggs and the apple that you eat at 10 a.m., you know, and you just take your snacks and you eat them together with that first meal, Mm -hmm. it feels a little weird. Because you have this suspicion, like, why am I overeating? I feel like I'm eating this large amount of food. Yeah, But there's an element of trust. And I tell them, just think about how long you're going to be able to go now without needing to snack. Now you're not going to be hungry until closer to lunchtime. So physically Mm -hmm. you can do it. Now we also know that most people listening to this podcast, probably you probably much like me, we love eating. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> We're like, wait, I don't mind being hungry before lunch because then I get to eat a snack. It's a great little diversion. Yeah. Um, so we talk about you know, that aspect too because it certainly needs to be addressed. But uh, on the physical side, if you just simply increase the size of breakfast and practice going several hours after the meal before you eat again, you start to get clearer signals from your body. You get more satisfied, obviously, when you eat a larger meal. And then you also learn what it's like to get all the way into the fasted state and let yourself actually feel hunger. Get that tummy rumble and then eat again to satisfy it at your next meal. So we often just start with the morning because it's uh, less intimidating than trying to change everything all day long. Mm-hmm. But as somebody is, you know, getting the, the knack of not eating between breakfast and lunch because they have beefed up their breakfast, then we just extend that to the rest of the day and people try and beef up their lunch so they can make it at least four hours uh, after lunch without having a snack. Sometimes people want to add in a fourth meal between lunch and dinner if their mm-hmm. gap there is really long. For a lot of people who are working outside the home, the gap between their lunch and then when they get home and actually cook dinner and sit down to dinner is you know more than seven hours. So yes. we'll plan on some sort of fourth feeding, you know, to be hungry sometime in the afternoon and to eat something there and size it appropriately. So you're feeling hungry again for dinner. Does that all make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Do you find that people hesitate to do this because like you said, people like to snack they, because, you know, people eat for lots of reasons besides hunger. You know, absolutely. we, we absolutely. all do that. Do you encourage them to just, Hey, set that aside for a moment and just, we're going to try this and we'll take care of those other pieces later. Or
1: how do you handle that? We usually deal with it as it comes up in, in the, um, you know, I'd hate to tell somebody like, just sit with that discomfort. I'll talk about it later. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, I want to help everybody feel better mm-hmm. right away. Like I want to make this as comfortable and non-traumatic as Yeah, possible. I'm a very gentle person. So <laughs> usually if somebody's saying, you know, I'm noticing I want to grab snacks during the day, especially if you're working from home. It can be really difficult not to like grab, go through the kitchen and grab a handful of pretzels and then pass through the kitchen later and grab an apple and pass through again later and grab something else. So what we do is we try and put in breaks of a different sort. Mm-hmm. So uh, we might have to schedule an Instagram break or mm-hmm. a lay down for five minutes break or put on a song and dance around break. Yeah. People hesitate to do that more than you would believe.
0: Oh, I totally believe
1: it. Yeah. Right. Cause we've legitimized breaks to stop and eat as a basic human function for which we won't feel guilty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then taking that same two minutes to do something that's not eating just for ourselves, people resist, but yes. I can usually convince them that it's not a waste of time if they were currently taking those 2 minutes to eat unnecessary calories. So. Yes. So now I so, don't yeah, know if, if somebody you coined you know, these per- terms
0: or if these are just something I read in your book and you got it from someone else but procrastinating and entertainment. Did, yes, did you know I, those I
1: know those up. Yes.
0: You're, they're fa- they're fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> and procrastinating describes perfectly what you just described and you know a lot of us have done that. A lot of us are just really
1: accustomed to that because it feels comfortable. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And you can procrastinate read or you can procrastinate dance. You can yeah. do other activities if you're not going <laughs> really to tackle a certain topic that don't have a caloric cost. Yes. so we're Working on a harm reduction standpoint, you know, it's yeah. not like your only option is to snack or get down to business.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So and it's good. You, and I think just realizing that for people is kind of like, Oh, I hadn't thought about that. You know, cause they don't usually realize they're even doing it.
1: Exactly. Yeah. You're right. Awareness is sometimes the only thing needed to put the wheels in motion to change something. Yeah. Um, So if somebody is gaining awareness that they're snacking for emotional solace or Mm -hmm. out of rebellion against something there, something in the world or out of anger at someone, you know, recognizing that you're snacking because you're angry contradicts people's values enough because it itches. Like I don't want to be the kind of person that gets angry and then doesn't respond to it. I just go, show food in my mouth. You know, right. most people, once they're aware that they're doing that, they naturally feel inclined to change and be like, what do I want to do? Like, if I'm actually angry, maybe I want to do something about it. Maybe I want to talk to that person. Maybe mm-hmm. I need to write a letter to someone. Um, yeah. So yeah, awareness can be a really valuable nudge to change things.
0: For sure. So with habit number one, you talked about having your meals be, you know, spaced out. So you only have three to four meals per day so with that then you start to feel hungry which is something that you know, a lot of us aren't used to so talk about habit two mastering your hunger
1: so as you said the habit two is about feeling hunger and treating it differently than we may have treated it in the past as i said earlier most clients that come to me have dieted before they've kind of they tell me they've done everything and they have you've Control over their weight. So, for many of these people, hunger is something they have a checkered relationship with. They may have done restrictive diets or juice fasts, where they encountered hunger for so many hours of the day that they're almost scarred. They have like post-traumatic stress about you know these really upsetting levels of hunger. Uh, And sometimes people have come to treat it as an emergency, which can just be a cultural phenomenon. You know, Snickers ads and Weight Watchers ads alike have demonized hunger you know putting it into cartoon character forms or suggesting you're not you when you're hungry um the use of the word hangry Mm -hmm. you know it justifies appetite sensation is a justifiable reason for you to lose your manners and be abrupt and rude Mm -hmm. and I don't, I I can understand why people adopt that because yeah, we all have a tendency to be a little irritable if we're uncomfortable. Uh, But I encourage people not to say that they're hangry uh, and also not to say that they're starving because I feel like these dramatic words demonize hunger. No more dangerous or unbearable than feeling a full bladder and that you need to find a, a restroom.
0: You know,
1: right. You, you, most people wouldn't, you know, snap at someone and say, I'm sorry, I, I had to pee. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Could you imagine? That's ridiculous.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I encourage people just to think about it as a normal body sensation. And if you have, you know, a checkered past with hunger, you may only want to practice feeling it for five minutes at a time. There's no need to jump in and expose yourself to levels of hunger that really make you feel distressed. Um, but choosing to experience hunger for five minutes at a time with a really open mind can enable you to see how resilient you are and that like, wow, I'm just letting myself feel hungry right now. And it's not that horrible. It's kind yeah. of a rumbly belly thing. and makes me look forward to eating, but it's not killing me. I'm not coming apart at the seams. I'm not dying. Um, and that was really my experience because I treated hunger like it was a flesh eating virus. I wanted to prevent it after going through a restrictive eating disorder where I was plagued by hunger day and night and also Mm. feeling some of the worst depression and anxiety of my life. It was all wrapped up into this one ugly package that I would prefer to avoid. Yeah. I had cereal bars in my purse, protein bars in the car. It was like, if there was a pileup on the freeway, I would have lived for a month because (laughs) so <laughs> I you had food everywhere you had tons so many you. of food I wanted to make sure I did not get hungry and so as I started to uncover this research about you know eating with more space between the meals but then having more substantial meals so you actually get your appetite satisfied completely and then give it time to come back uh, my husband encouraged me you know why don't you just try exploring it try and feel hungry for a little bit and Bit by bit, I started with five minutes and I, I really felt empowered as I was able to say, Yeah, I'm go- just gonna feel hungry for a few minutes before my meal. This is not hours a day. This is not restrictive dieting of an unhealthy sort. This is just feeling a normal amount of hunger and appetite that makes me look forward to eating. And so I usually tell people for weight maintenance, if you just wanna be a healthy body weight or you are a healthy body weight and you just wanna stay there and ensure that you don't gain weight or something that you wanna teach your kids, a really appropriate skill is to practice using that belly centered sensation of hunger not something in our mouth or our throats or our heads that really abdominal centered feeling if we use that as the signal to eat a lot of life's problems are averted it makes us you know choose more productive coping mechanisms when we're actually emotional or choose to assert ourselves if we're actually In the habit of eating to squash down a feeling that we might want to express to someone. So um, just trying to make sure you have that belly-centered hunger before eating most of the time uh, is a really great habit for people to practice. What's in the book, because it is a weight loss context, is uh, a guideline to practice, work your way up to it if you need to, but practice feeling hunger for 30 to 60 minutes before each time you eat. So you sit with it for a period of time. That might be time that you're cooking or uh, just time that you're letting your hunger be there before you go grab your lunchbox. Um, but enabling yourself to feel that 30 to 60 minutes is what helps you create a calorie deficit mm-hmm. without really uh, needing to count stuff or micromanage or tally up your calories. You can just use your body's, your body's very good at the math, put it that way.
0: And- what do you say when people, because obviously people when they're starting this are going to struggle with the idea of, hey, I'm hungry for 30 to 60 minutes. And I, I like the, the term sit with your hunger. This is, this is you know, a term I've heard from you that I use with clients. What should people actively be doing? Like if they're feeling like some you know, mild distress about that hunger, like what are some things that you would suggest? Like here are things you should think or things you should do as they're sitting with that
1: hunger? Sure. There's a lot of uh, a lot of things people can do. Um, so on one avenue, it's perfectly okay to distract yourself. Many people find it's easier to tolerate hunger if they are engrossed in a project or they found a really great shoe sale and they're on a retail spree. <laughs> like if, you're, if you're in a good mood and if you're engaged, it's much easier to feel mm-hmm. hunger and be like, oh, hey, there's that thing that's not distressing. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, on a day where you've had very little sleep, where you're stressed yeah. out and maybe some of your emotions are kicked up by other factors in your life, like tension or worry. You may not be up for feeling hunger for all that long. And it's okay to be gentle with yourself and say, today I'm just going to feel it and eat. That's okay. You know, you have to work with yourself. As I said, you can't be too gentle. You can't be too gentle. You cannot go too slow. Yeah. So, um, so that, that is one option. Another thing that some people enjoy is using positive cognitions and positive sort of affirmations when they're feeling hungry so you if you reframe that sensation of hunger into this is the sensation that reassures me i am getting into a calorie deficit this is the sensation that reassures me i am not overfeeding my body this sensation that i'm having is my body clearly communicating with me instead of me telling it what it can or cannot do this is us working as a team thinking about all of those positive aspects can be like hey this is a really good thing and many of my clients who initially were kind of uh not uh, not thrilled at the idea of feeling hunger for a little while each day started mm-hmm. to really like it they start to get excited they're like yeah there's the rumble lunch isn't far away like, <laughs> it can be. Really, i like really that
0: nice. i like that reframing of of it as a positive as a positive thing and as a you know a cue to remember like I'm supposed to feel this way, especially if I'm trying to lose weight, like I should feel this way. You know, you you were talking earlier about it not being an emergency. It really does feel like one. I guess it's just a conditioning thing. Like hunger is an emergency. You know, as a mom, I remember even with like my children when they were really little thinking like I should pack snacks. What if they get hungry? You know, and it never occurred to me to question like, why is that necessary? That they constantly have food all the time. Yeah. You know, but it feels like just culturally, that's what we do. Like we need to make sure we're not hungry. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and it's it's interesting because it's not that way in all cultures around the world. It tends to be a more consolidated in North America.
0: Interesting. Where we have yeah. where we have an obesity epidemic.
1: Yes. You know, no coincidence that it's you know. Related to a snacking culture or a Mm -hmm. hunger prevention culture.
0: Hunger prevention. Yeah. Yeah. So talk to us about habit number three.
1: Sure. So habit number three is the other side of the coin when it comes to communicating with your body and listening to its signals. So uh, the feeling of satiety is the topic of chapter three, and I call it eating just enough. That's the behavior that we're going for. The idea is to eat enough that you feel comfortable, that you feel satisfied, that you don't feel you know, deprived or still hungry when you finish eating, uh, but not to continue eating past that because you don't need to get a margin of safety or security against hunger, as we discussed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really just about getting satisfied um, without feeling stuffed or excess, so. Now, how does a person learn to do that? Much like, much like hunger, we first have to talk about what exactly these feelings feel like. And it's always an adventure in linguistics to try and describe mm. physical sensations when all you have are words. Yeah. So I have a graph in the book um, as, as well as you can see it at nutritionloft.com and eating just enough lessons, if, which are free if you want to head over there and see some more stuff. Nice. You'll get really tired of hearing my voice. There's like 70 or more lessons that I've recorded on there. Nice. Um, so in the eating just enough lesson, we described three phases. And the first one is, is colored yellow. And that is when you're not yet satisfied. So when you begin your meal, you have that belly rumbling hunger. The food is really tasty, really awesome. You have a really high motivation to continue eating. That gradually fades away into the feeling of satisfied. Now, Satisfied is coded green on my graph, and it kind of looks like uh, there's a line on it, and the the line is the shape of a bell curve, and Mm -hmm. the vertical axis, or how how high the line goes, is the level of well-being that you feel. Mm -hmm. So as you can imagine, you move from the yellow into the green zone, your well-being is going up, 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 up. You're feeling better and better and better. That hunger is fading away. You're feeling more relaxed, content, complete, whole, all good things. At some point, if you continue eating, that happy, content, comfortable feeling becomes what we call the red zone. And you start to feel a little bit worse. You start to feel a little too full. Maybe you feel a pressure or a discomfort. You may feel like your pants are uncomfortably tight or that your energy level is decreasing with each bite that you take. It's not Mm -hmm. really uh, improving or making you feel more satisfied or relaxed. So some of the initial practices that people engage in are just trying to tune in and feel those transitions. Feel yourself getting more calm and relaxed and satisfied and happy. And then start to feel when it starts to feel icky and Mm -hmm. you start to feel worse. And try not to go into that zone if you can avoid it. So one of the cue phrases I use there is, stop when you feel awesome.
0: I like that. (laughs) When you
1: feel awesome,
0: stop there. It's hard
1: because you're feeling awesome. And what if the food's super tasty, right? This is so true. This is so true. So um, think about feeling physically awesome. Mm -hmm. Now, if the food is really, really tasty and there's a lot of pleasure and enjoyment going on, that's one of the factors that leads people to be like, you know, I will handle the overfull feeling. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to keep going. Yeah. So if you want to stop when you feel physically awesome, but the food is super tasty and enjoyable, there's a few tactics that can help. So one of them is when you first take the bite of a meal and it's super delicious, Mm -hmm. your gut instinct is going to say, get it in. This is so good. Yeah. (laughs) And especially because you've waited until you're hungry, you may have a tendency (laughs) to eat like a starved wolf (laughs) going very, very rapidly. And so I encourage people, especially when you notice that this is a tastier than your average meal, think of it like you're driving on a road and you see this gorgeous sunset off to the side. Mm-hmm. You don't slam on the gas pedal so you can get through it as fast as possible. You might pull over and mm-hmm. slow down, You're like, take it in. So kind of the same thing when you take that first bite and you're like, wow, I don't know what the chef did to this. It's amazing. Or I don't know what I did to this. I made the perfect steak. <laughs> yeah. Slow down, savor it. Give yourself time with each bite. Let yourself fully enjoy it. And that way you can reach the point where you're physically satisfied and it's actually not going to get any more pleasurable to keep eating more and more quantity. So I guess what I'm saying there is if you eat your food slowly, the same amount of food will give you more minutes of pleasure, more minutes of satisfaction. Got it. Two more tricks for... Uh, eating just enough even when it's super tasty so oh. we talked about slowing it down think about the sunset see it's beautiful sunset slow it down and take it in <laughs> number two is um sorry for the pause here i gotta think about what okay. I'm, how i'm gonna say this um it just blanked <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, your pod- that, that happens to me a your lot podcast, your podcast recording uh editing <laughs> <abilities>. <laughs> Hey, you
0: know, I'm gonna leave it in there because uh, I do that all the time. I'm having oh, okay. uh, menopause uh, brain fog these days and it happens to me regularly. I just lose all words I was
1: going to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it totally happens. Um, okay, so second thing that we can do is to think about diminishing returns. So that's a term from economics where you, know, you basically can't double the throughput of any system and get double the output. So uh, when it comes to food, eating double the quantity of something doesn't give you double the taste enjoyment Mm -hmm. because um, our enjoyment of each bite actually decreases as we go through a meal. And I have some interesting graphs that I've posted on Facebook before. I can share them with you if you want any uh, addendums to the podcast. But if you take people that are self-proclaimed chocoholics, Mm -hmm. give them chocolate and you ask them, from one to 10, how pleasurable is this? They'll give it like a nine or a nine and a half. They're like, we love chocolate. If you keep giving them chocolate and asking them, how good is it now? How good is it now? How good is it now? The line comes down. The line goes to seven, goes to six, goes to five. And as you can imagine, if you've ever really overdone it on something, it almost becomes repellent at a Mm -hmm. certain point. So Mm -hmm. the line crosses zero and it actually becomes unpleasant. Mm -hmm. Most people won't continue eating past the zero. Right. What they will do, they'll keep eating it even when it's not amazing anymore, even when it's just kind of okay. And so Mm -hmm. that's where you're often in the red zone. Mm -hmm. You've gotten the most pleasurable bites. You're now getting very little reward for the additional calories that you're eating. And you'd be better off, in most cases, saving that food for the next day because it's going to be a nine out of ten again if you save it. So uh, it can be really helpful to think about those diminishing returns. Think about the fact that you're. Any taste declines in pleasurability over time. And that, that's actually something that may take some skill to tune into. When people say, I can't notice that, um, I let them know that research indicates that it's tougher for people who are overweight and obese to notice, mm-hmm. but that you can absolutely train yourself to tune in more to that um, decline in taste pleasure. And that can help you with you know, putting the brakes on when you've had enough. So that makes
0: sense. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think it's also hard for people sometimes in that moment to think like, well, I could save this for tomorrow or whenever, um, if they kind of have the idea of like, I have to get it all all in now, like if they've had issues with, you know, scarcity for whatever reason, you know, like maybe they didn't always have food available, or if they're, you know, growing up their their mom, like kept a tight eye on what they ate all the time, you know, if they kind of worry, like maybe that food's not going to be there tomorrow.
1: Yeah, that was actually the third thing that I was going to bring up oh. is that when we have really, really tasty food, sometimes we muck with our own minds by saying, this is so good, you can't ever have this again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this Haagen-Dazs ice cream is so amazing, but we're not doing this again. So you, mm-hmm. you, that is encouraging you to eat it all now because you're imposing scarcity on right. it. It's your so, shot. Yeah. So to counteract that, I recommend that people recognize it as a scarcity mindset and recognize that scarcity, another economic concept, uh, ramps up the value of any commodity. So if salt was in short supply, we'd be hoarding salt, and salt would cost yeah. you know, lots more money. And so what we wanna do to bring the, the, if that inflated value is making us crave and want, and if you would you know, sacrifice a family member to have a little more of that food, <laughs> it's really taken on a disproportionately large value to you. It's helpful to bring that down, bring it back to the category where it's just food, where it's just one of many foods. It's not a magical thing. Um, And to do that, you may need to create abundance and you can create abundance in a physical sense by surrounding yourself with that food, buying lots of it, having it around. I find that tends to lead toward overeating. So I prefer the second type of abundance creation, which is an abundance mindset. Mm -hmm. You can remind yourself, these are not the last cool ranch Doritos on the planet there is an aisle at the grocery store (laughs) with bags and bags and bags of these. And there's other flavors of Doritos. And there's potato chips. And I can buy all of them. I have car keys. I have a credit card. I could fill my entire trunk with them right now and bring them home. No one is cutting me off. I have all of these that I possibly could need. There's more than enough food in the world.
0: Yeah. And I can have them anytime I want. I could literally go and get them Anytime. And do you think that's one of the reasons why people struggle when they do things like say, I'm going to cut out sugar or I'm going to not eat sweets, you know, because then it's immediately, it's scarce. Like I can't have that anymore. And so then they, they struggle thinking like, I can't have cake. I can't have cake. Right. And so then if cake appears, like I better eat all the cake because I'm, I'm not allowed really, I shouldn't be even having it.
1: Yeah. And it's even weirder when people get the idea that I don't really want cake right now. But I might want it in the future so I can inoculate myself against that future craving by eating it now when I don't want it. Yeah. Doesn't yeah. work that way. <laughs> you can't vaccinate yourself against future <laughs> cravings by eating the food <laughs> now. There's no cake vaccination. There is no cake. Can you imagine the cake <laughs> anti vaxxers? <laughs> There's an academic of cupcakes going on at the local middle school. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs>
0: So oh, no, so much of this is in our mind. That's what I'm hearing from you. Like so yeah. much of
1: this is in our mind. It absolutely is. You know, I'm I have a really strong biology background, but I take a a lot of psychological approach. I consider myself in many ways to be a food and eating therapist mm-hmm. to help people reform that healthy relationship with food and feel positive about all aspects of feeling hunger, feeling satisfied, feeling good about eating vegetables, and also feeling absolutely guilt-free when they want to have a treat, to sit down mm. and eat the piece of cake mindfully, rather than like sliver little pieces off when nobody's looking, to try and sneak it by their own conscience. Right.
0: That's a very different feeling. Having yeah. done both of those, that's a yeah, very too. different feeling. <laughs> like, like, Hey, I'm going to have a slice of cake, cutting off a slice of cake and eating it, versus spending the day
1: cutting off those slivers.
0: You know, yeah. hope, like, did anybody notice I just ate a third of a cake eating slivers? I hope not. <laughs> you
1: know? I have had that same realization. Like, yeah. I'm the only person that's been home. <laughs> exactly. Noticeably less of that cake. Here. <laughs> I should have just had a piece of cake. <laughs> yeah. Now, how about this?
0: What to do when you overeat? Say you're, you're really working on this habit, eating just enough. You're working and on that. And all of
1: a sudden, you're like, oh, Dookie, I'm in the red zone. Yes, like yeah. i way overate what to do. Sure, uh, that's a great question. It's, uh, it's, I think it's actually one of the headings in the book. It's like, oh no, I overate. I think it's crap, I overate, now what is the heading? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it is mm-hmm. totally a uh, reasonable thing. It's going to happen to everybody. And one of the things that you'll see throughout my book and that you can't escape from me in, in conversation is that mistakes happen. And sometimes we need to let go of perfectionism to succeed with our weight as well as happiness and all sorts of other relationships in our lives. And so recognizing that you have not done the worst thing, you have not committed genocide, you simply ate a bit too much, helps keep it in perspective. It's normal. It's not going to hurt you. It's not an ethical shortfall. You're probably distracted and paying a lot of attention to the taste of the food or your company or something else. So I say it starts with kindness, gentleness, and understanding. Second, you can try and figure out where your attention was if it wasn't on your fullness level because sometimes it just sneaks past us and we don't even think, How full am I getting? We just notice when we're over full, like kind of noticing after the fact. So, if that's the case, then you can learn from that and use it going forward to try and stop and check in with yourself midway through your meal or three quarters through your meal, taking what we call a halftime break. Mm -hmm. So, uh, what I often suggest to people because Eating out is particularly easy to do that, um, kind of eat into the red zone before you've noticed it. Yeah, is when your food arrives, physically or just visually, divide it somewhere. Maybe you have three tacos in front of you and you decide, okay, after the second taco, halftime break. Yeah. Or after the first slice of pizza, halftime break. And you pre-plan when you're going to press pause. When you get to that point, you press pause, and that break in eating is reserved for you to check in with your stomach. Hey, pit crew, how's it going? How is the stomach doing? Are we getting full? Do I need to stop eating now and take the rest home? Or do I probably need to eat a little bit more? Maybe I'll eat the filling out of the third taco. Mm-hmm. That sort of uh, gut check. Yeah. Um, because if you don't define a specific time point to stop, it's really easy to just be distracted with the food, the conversation, the drinks, the surroundings, and just zoom right past it. So, uh, so that, that is one strategy that can help people avoid getting into the red zone. And you can you know, just commit to doing that next time so that you try yeah. and prevent making the same mistake. The second type of phenomenon that can cause red zone entry is when we actually notice we're getting full and we say, I'm going to keep going anyway. Yes. <laughs> kind of okay. Like yeah. I think that's willful, super common. Yeah, absolutely. The willful progression uh, past satisfied. Again, it's not a terrible thing. It's something that people are going to choose to do from time to time. Um, and don't you feel like maybe the guilt
0: with that one is even stronger? Because like, they know. It's not like, oh, I accidentally did this. Like I willfully chose to overeat. So I saw pretty- the speed limit sign, officer.
1: And I yes, I did. Up. I know
0: it, and I did it. So don't you feel like that often, like, that food guilt is even worse in that moment? Like, wow, I totally did this, and I know I did it.
1: Well, see, I don't think it's really a reason for guilt. It's simply something that I try and be curious about. Like, okay. So yeah. there was a reason that I felt it was worthwhile. Maybe the food was that enjoyable that i just still wanted to have more of it and it's really you know not the end of the world if you choose that on occasion it's not even going to impact your weight if you do it on an infrequent basis mm-hmm. um i invite people to try and compare their expectations to their outcomes when that happens like okay so you thought the amount of fun that i'm going to have by continuing eating is well worth the potential 500 extra calories and maybe heartburn was it yeah because maybe it was maybe it wasn't Maybe it was like you know, it was totally worth it to have that crepe dessert in France with my husband on top of the escargot and all the other stuff I had. I it was so worth it. Or yeah. maybe it was like you know, that lukewarm third piece of pizza that I told myself had like I wasn't having fun unless I ate it. Really mm-hmm. wasn't all that much additional fun. So I, I think if somebody is recognizing their satiety point and then choosing to eat past it just get curious you know try and ask yourself what your values were because there's a chance that it was in line with your values to call that an exception and eat past satisfied and there's a chance that it wasn't and that you can kind of figure out what tripped you up um and maybe there was a sabotaging thought at play like Mm. eating more will make this night more fun or some, some kind of similar half truth Got it. So
0: when people, if they feel that sensation of like, I feel guilty because I knew what I was doing, use that as a sign to be curious about their behavior. And why did I choose that? And am I glad I did that? Or what would I do differently next time?
1: Sure. Yeah. You had some reason. Yeah. So, you know, you might as well investigate what your uh, motive was. And as I said, sometimes you'll find that it was perfectly in line with your values because Mm -hmm. You know, most of the people I work with, weight loss is not the only thing in their life that's important to them. It's also important to enjoy themselves and Mm -hmm. to enjoy tasty things and to spend, you know, have memorable experiences. And so there are certain occasions at which you're going to say, you know, weight loss is not as valuable as this other thing to me. And Mm -hmm. therefore, I'm not going to do the most leanness conducive thing. Yeah. Um, I find that that's a minority of the time. Truthfully, that it's actually in line with people's values to overeat. Mm-hmm. And that most of the time, people, uh, when they recognize what their rationale was for eating into the red zone, it's something that's not 100% true. It's a bit of a thought sabotage, like forgetting that they could take it home and have it the next day. Yeah. Or thinking, I'm going to go on a diet tomorrow. Therefore, I should eat all of this now. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to prevent some future suffering or that yeah. it's going to be more fun. Like, oh, I don't want to stop having fun. No one said you had to stop having fun if you stopped eating pizza. You can still have fun. There's a lot of ways to have fun. <laughs> like the Caloric consumption is not inherently more fun. Yeah. If it were, all of these people that consume thousands of extra calories a day would not be crying to me. Yeah. Yeah. You know? that, caloric that's... consumption is not more fun. And I know, you know times in my life when I've been overweight and I was consuming way more calories than I needed, I was not having a more joyful experience.
0: So being very conscious of that. So it seems like what you're saying is really thinking through these things. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, that's why I think coaching is invaluable, as I'm sure you've discovered, Kim, in your conversations. When you talk about this stuff and you talk about your eating experiences and why you chose to eat the things that you did in a completely kind and accepting atmosphere, you're able to learn so much more about yourself. Most of us never get that because, one, nobody's interested in hearing why we ate the third slice of pizza. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Your neighbor is not interested. Tim and I are interested in hearing it. That's why. Why did that. you do it? Yes. <laughs> um, and we get tied up in our own guilt or should. I shouldn't yeah. have done that. I shouldn't have done that. I feel so guilty. And those emotions just get in the way from learning. So, you know, if you want to create the optimal learning environment for yourself, you have to remove that penalty of emotion.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, for those who don't have coaches, and I do think it's one of the best parts of having a coach that you can have these kinds of conversations. But for those people who don't, one of the things that I find really helps is having these conversations out loud with yourself, not in yeah. your head, yeah. but asking you these, asking yourself these questions out loud. Because when you hear yourself saying these things, um, it's way more powerful than just kind of ruminating it on yeah. it in yeah. your
1: head. Just being nice yeah. to yourself and trying to say, like, okay, let me set aside should, let me set aside guilt, let me just try and explore why I chose that.
0: Because maybe yeah. there's a
1: good reason. Um, I think can lead people to a lot of good insights. And a lot of people I've known have uh, gotten a lot of value from journaling. Yeah. Even when That's powerful as well.
0: Mm-hmm. For sure. And, you know, even if you, like you said, a lot of times they'll discover there wasn't necessarily a good reason that they had a, a reason that maybe wasn't so good, being able to be kind to yourself about that and take it as a chance to like learn and do something different next time versus, you know, beating yourself up over what you did this time, you know, is, yeah,
1: th- is really important. I think it's more important to be kind to yourself when you've messed up. Yeah than when you're doing well. Because when yeah. you're doing well, it's really easy to be like, hey, you got me, I had kale and I cleaned, I cleaned the oven. I'm totally adulting today, you know? <laughs> it's just like all the people that are nice to us when we've won an award is kind of like, yeah, that's that's nice. great. But the people that really stick out are the people that say, Yeah, you forgot to drive me to the airport and I missed my flight, but I'm going to forgive you. So <laughs> so the people that are nice yeah. to you when you have messed up yes. are the people that really make you go, oh, you are bonded to me. I am indebted yeah. to you. I trust you. Uh, we have this close relationship. And so when you can do that to yourself, say like, Hey, Georgie, you dropped the ball. You really really didn't need to eat that, but yeah. that's okay. We're going to come back from this. We're going to learn from it. It enables you to have a more trusting, more positive relationship with yourself. And that sort of relationship makes you want to take care of yourself better. Yeah, if you keep this advers- Yeah. If you keep this adversarial thing going, you could feel angry enough at yourself that you don't really want to take all that good care of yourself because you're not on great terms.
0: Yeah. I love that. That's, that's super powerful. You know, we treat ourselves worse than we would our worst enemies sometimes with the things we sometimes. say to ourselves. And, um, I love the idea of treating yourself, yourself kindly, especially when you mess up, mess up. Yeah. Love
1: absolutely. That.
0: So let's hit number four really quickly. I know you said you don't always need to get to number four, but tell us about it
1: anyway. Right. So n- Habit number four and chapter number four in my book is called Eating Mostly Whole Foods. Very deliberately chosen title again on that chapter because it's not eat only whole foods and we're not talking about whole foods market, the grocery store. (laughs) We're talking about unprocessed foods and how we want the majority of the food we eat on a daily basis to come from these because it, it helps our body's natural appetite mechanisms work really well. If you do the opposite and you eat mostly processed or high or ultra-processed foods, say mm-hmm. Twinkies and Pepsi, your body is not designed to deal with those. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's such an overgeneralization. But um, liquid calories and liquid sugars—they tend to not cause. A proportional satisfaction response. It's almost like they sneak under the energy detector in our brains and so that is one of the reasons many experts believe they uniquely contribute to obesity in a specific pattern because they do not provide satisfaction. Secondarily, um, our body's satiety mechanisms operate really well on high-volume foods, so high fiber diets, diets with lots of fruits and vegetables, tend to take up more volume in the stomach and help provide stretch receptor signaling up to the brain which is one of the fastest signals during a meal to say yo there's food coming in here dial back the hunger yeah so before the carbohydrates fats and proteins start reaching our bloodstream that volume uh response is really helpful so to take the maximal advantage of your body's um inbuilt mechanisms to control your weight whole foods really really operate the best plus you know it's not all just about weight as we said earlier we don't want to get heart attacks. Mm-hmm. We don't want to get cancer. You know, we don't want to have all these chronic diseases happen. And so eating unprocessed foods, as much as it's not directly about weight loss, it, it's kind of the thing you have to say to eat mostly whole foods. So as I mentioned, a lot of people that have been working on nutrition, you know, working on their own nutrition or taking an interest in it for a period of time are already eating lots of vegetables and chicken. And they've, you know, they've long ago stopped visiting fast food drive throughs and mm-hmm. you know they eat some candy but they're not eating it as lunch so yeah for many people this is not something that where they have to make a lot of changes um and I actually have to tell people don't take it so seriously when they're saying things like but I wanted to put mustard on my sandwich isn't that processed and I'm like too much detail that's not what we're talking mostly whole foods the fact that you have whole wheat bread and lettuce and turkey and cheese you're doing great yeah that's mostly whole foods um the few people that uh do need to make some adjustments when they reach chapter four are generally people that are eating a lot of convenience foods mm-hmm. um so for example out of vending machines or airports or mm-hmm. that that sort of uh truckers you know i've worked with people that drive trucks for a living and unfortunately they don't have great refrigeration or reheating potential for a lot of mm-hmm. their meals and to you know be the most efficient they want to keep driving so handheld things work best and those are often wrapped in Paper or foil wrappers, right, right. Um, and then the other people that sometimes need to make a change are people that are eating. Uh, oh, they're almost too far into the diet and fitness industry, and they're having lots and lots of powders and bars. Mm-hmm. So if somebody's having, you know, a protein shake for breakfast, and then a protein cookie for mm-hmm. lunch, and then uh, oatmeal with protein powder for dinner, and then they have a Quest bar after that, I'm like an awful lot of these packaged foods first of all
0: i wouldn't want to be alone in a room with that person oh my goodness can you imagine
1: (laughs) (laughs) so you know trying to decrease the the bars and powders to something like one a day is Mm -hmm. you know a very reasonable intake i recommend because i mean they are convenient yeah quest bars are darn tasty so you know i usually tell people like if if one smoothie a day or one protein bar a day helps and just gets you a convenient protein source something that you can eat on the run, do it. And then just see what you could do with your other meals. And you can try and get some fruit and vegetable and that sort of stuff in. So now, what would you ch-
0: say to people mm-hmm. who struggle to enjoy vegetables? Like I have quite a few clients and they have not grown up. They haven't, they haven't, you know, set their lifestyle up in a way that they eat a lot of vegetables and some are just very resistant to adding them in. Do you think it's something that a person can learn to do?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I didn't grow up eating the widest variety of vegetables myself. Um, So when people say they don't like vegetables categorically, I try and get them to open their minds Mm -hmm. and acknowledge the possibility that they have discovered some vegetables they do not enjoy, but that there may be others that they do. Uh And so if they have some short list of things that are okay, which they often do, many times people will say tomato sauce is okay, okay so we'll work with that we'll work with that um yeah um or if salsa or pico de gallo on their mexican food is okay we can work with that so we try and find little bits of vegetable that they do enjoy and then expand on that theme um and expand the portion so for example if somebody says oh yeah i like my tacos with that pico stuff on it which is chopped tomatoes and onions and cilantro and sometimes uh jalapeno peppers or bell peppers mm-hmm. and i'll be like okay well let's just make a lot of that let's make a lot of pico and let's just put it on everything let's yes. just start putting it on eggs well, pico on eggs that'd be great let's put pico mm-hmm. on eggs do you ever make a chicken and put pico on it you know it's awesome throw a mango in there in mm-hmm. the mix so you have like this kind of mango salsa so you use what they already like and you try and expand upon it if somebody likes raw tomatoes and raw onions they might like a spacho mm-hmm. which is a, a raw tomato and vegetable based soup that's spanish and usually served cold and sometimes people are like wow i really like a it tastes fresh and I no idea what this was and i really like it so um there's a, so start with what they do like and invite them to try new stuff and seasoning their vegetables better many times people who think vegetables are boring just aren't seasoning them very well mm-hmm. because vegetables often don't have um I don't want to say they don't have flavor on their own because that's not true. I feel like they do have flavor on their own, but it really pops more Mm -hmm. if you get some onion and garlic. Definitely you need salt. You need some pepper, um, sometimes some acidity, like some lemon juice can really bring it out more. Um, And so being a bit more aggressive with the seasonings that you put on your vegetables can make them a lot more enjoyable. For sure. And the way you cook them too. Mm -hmm. I grew up, I did not like vegetables until I was 42.
0: I'm, wow, I'm, I am and well, okay. I said that I did not like 99% of vegetables until I was 42, and somebody challenged me. I was I was quite overweight, and the person who was helping me challenged me, and I said I don't really like vegetables, and he said, "Well, that's ridiculous. Like I don't care. You you need to find a way to eat some." <laughs> He wasn't a professional. He was just a friend. And, so score is like <laughs> and he's like, that's too bad. He's like, he's like, you need to be a grown-up and you need to find some vegetables to eat. And so I started actively working to figure out how to eat vegetables. And now I eat a whole bunch of them. But a lot of it was finding a way to not have them, you know, I didn't want boiled peas, you know. I did you know, so I started grilling most of my food with garlic on it, and I really mm-hmm. like it.
1: Yeah, and I still to this day I don't
0: love yeah I don't love green beans and peas I don't typically eat them, but I love you know I I could name like twenty vegetables that I eat now you know probably more but it has a lot to do with how I cook them and how I season them, and giving myself permission to not like some of them.
1: Yeah, I think that's perfect. And there's yeah, giving yourself permission to not like certain things is really important. Like there's certain fruits I don't like, there's certain vegetables I don't like and I don't eat them and that's fine because there's thousands of foods in the world. Yes. Like you can build an adequate diet, you know, barring a few things that you just don't yeah. Want to eat. Yeah. Your... Like
0: nothing's required. I love the idea that like there's nothing that's banned and there's nothing that's required. Like yeah. There's so much variety, you know, that a person can can choose from. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, Georgie, this has been a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on here and talk to me. Thanks, I love your book. Um, so a couple more things here. Why don't you tell us um, where can people find you? Where's the best place for them to go if they want more from you?
1: Sure. Well, if you'd like some more free nutrition stuff, I have a whole smattering of lessons up at nutritionloft.com. So go swing by nutritionloft.com, and you can check out our free lesson library. If you're interested in coaching, um, we have coaching options available. We have group online coaching, which is based on Facebook. And then I also do one-on-one counseling via phone and Skype. And then I have a colleague coach, the wonderful Mary Claire, um, who also does one-on-one coaching and group coaching uh, together with me. We have a binge eating group called Breaking Up With Binge Eating that we run every six months. So in general, if there's somebody out there who wants some help with their food, I'd love to hear from you and help you out um, and see what we can do to get you feeling better. I also have a lot of stuff up at georgiefear.com. I'm terrible at updating my blog because I'm so busy interacting with actual people that the blog (laughs) kind of sits there as the neglected stepchild. But there's articles, there's some recipes. You can hear more podcasts I've been on um, if you just swing by georgiefear.com. And then I'm a Facebook junkie. I love Facebook. I chat with people all the time on Facebook. I don't post a lot publicly because I tend to post to my clients and in my groups, but you can definitely follow me on there or on Instagram. Got it. Fantastic. Well, that's a lot of different ways then. Wonderful. So
0: I have one last question for you. Sure. And then um, hang on the line when we're done for a few minutes. Sure. So here's a question I ask everybody before they leave. Tell me your favorite word. Mm. Or a favorite word, if your favorite is too hard to come up with. I know. With. I need to think about this.
1: Um, Gut instinct. I know. Uh, <laughs> Weltschmarts. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> Weltschmarts. Weltschmarz. Welt is that is, German? Is a, you bet. It's <laughs> <laughs> a German word that describes the pain we feel that the world is so far from the ideal whoa i Isn't have not like heard that word i know i tend to love words that are not english because we don't have an english word for them no but we the don't words, yet. it's the, the it's literally world pain and it's like the, the discomfort of seeing how things are not ideal in so many ways and so i think that's a fantastic roll off the tongue veltschmerz and it's words. just fun to say Yes. Can I have another one? Because I have another one. Yeah, absolutely. Go for it. Another word from another language that I think is fantastic. And this one's in the book, so you may have seen it. Do you remember the Swedish, I think, word? Lagom?
0: No, I don't.
1: Lagom, L-A-G-O-M, is... I know, I believe it's Swiss. And of course, I hate saying this on recording because I'm going to go look it up. It's going to be Norwegian. I'm going to be <laughs> like, damn it, damn it, don't do that? We'll say it's from a Scandinavian. Yeah, there we go. And it's uh, a word that encompasses, it's a positive word for okay. something that's enough without being too much. And it has this positive connotation of appropriateness and efficiency Without I excess, like and so I like use that it. to describe eating just enough. I like that, and say that word again: lagom. 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 I had to look it up, uh, so I found it online in some reading, and then of course I had to get it pronounced by the computer, and so I kept yes. <laughs> having my computer pronounce it, and there was this man's voice going: lagom, 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 la <laughs> as I kept saying it.
0: <laughs> well, those are two really good words for us. I like both of them, and I have never heard either of them before. Awesome. So fantastic. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Kim. Be sure to send me a link and I will share it with my followers. Absolutely. Will do.